I tell you, you don't know what a deep satisfaction it is for me to have seen the fruits of Master's teachings become so active and lived in people's lives as they are. And one of the main things has been these communities. I had this dream when I was only 15, that communities would be the way of helping people to set examples. You know, I've often said, if everybody at Ananda were to go to a different city and uh, get a job and live in the suburbs, he would have an impact, but it would be a small impact. And not only that, but people wouldn't really be able to attribute his calmness, his kindness, his generosity, which comes from living a spiritual life, to attribute it to meditation and communion with God. They would just say, oh, you're a very special kind of person. Or if they were a little bit on a somewhat more physical level, it's because you eat bran for breakfast. But very few people would really, it would, the impact would be minimal. But when you get a few people living together like this and living for God, and you see the example in their lives of kindness and mutual service and so on, this impact goes around the world. And we have people coming from Thailand, from China, from Taiwan, from India, from Japan, from all over the world, just because Ananda exists. So there is power in groups. And uh, when you have a group of people doing something, that makes a statement. Master said that this way of life would be the wave of the future. He said that, that this idea would spread like wildfire. And he said that thousands of communities would spread, would come up. We can't expect all these communities to be Ananda communities, but if they can all have this idea of living together. You know, starting Ananda was not an easy thing. I'd have to say that not many people would have had the patience and grim determination to carry through as I've been able to do. But now that Ananda has actually been formed, it's easy to say to people, no, that is not what we're doing. We're doing this. We have a pattern and people fit into an already existing pattern. It's much easier. So I would say that even if communities are not Ananda communities, we have a pattern they can use. But I believe that the wave of the future is going to be away from the cities and toward the country, away from the cities and towards small groups of people buying land either in the country or closer to the cities. But this is going to change the world. There's another reason for this too, and it's a less positive one. That Master said that the war, you know, there are now 35,000 known atomic weapons in the world. That doesn't account for the unknown. If one country drops one atom bomb, do you suppose that'll be the last we'll hear of atom bombs? Master said they'd be falling everywhere. This world will be really changed by warfare. And even Master, one time I remember in Hollywood Church, he was talking about the future. 
And he paused a moment. He said, you don't know what a terrible cataclysm is coming. And the force with which he said that was really spine straightening. We have to know that God is not going to let man go in its present direction toward more and more violence, more and more hatred. I remember a movie review that I saw in the Times of India a couple of years ago talking about one movie that had just come out and said, if such and such a movie wasn't violent enough for you, this one will satisfy you. People seem to want violence. Well, that kind of wanting will breed its results. People want violence, they'll get it. People want disharmony, they'll get it. The terrorism, the anger, the heightened emotions, these things are, are serious. I remember one time, Master, he was talking about some petty regulation from City Hall, and the way everybody does, he said there ought to be a revolution. Just lightly, he said it. Then he paused a moment, uh, a moment and he said more seriously, there will be one. I suspect that the times ahead of us are not going to be very easy. He said that Europe would be devastated. He said Russia would be annihilated. These are strong statements. And I know that we, if we live in these communities for God, God will protect us. There was a very interesting experience they had. I only read this a few weeks ago, but it was in the time of Hiroshima when the atom bomb fell. There was one religious community in the city that somehow was not touched in the center of the city, as far as I read. At any rate, Master said, God will protect those who cling to him because the whole purpose of this cleansing will be to turn people toward God, to make them want him more seriously. I think that with that, we will see, I mean, atom bombs are not likely to fall on Nevada City. They're much more likely to fall on Los Angeles, on Portland, on big cities. And I do think that the wave of the future will be away from big cities. I do think that the wave of the future will be toward the country. And uh, I know some of you have asked these questions, which I will read in a few moments. But I just want to say that the best thing you could be doing with your lives is living for God and helping other people to live for God and setting an example to people everywhere that yes, it is possible to live the way everybody knows. Everybody wants peace, but you don't find peace by demonstrating with angry shouts and placards. You, you can bring peace on earth by living peace yourself. Our Ananda communities are doing that. So let me read a few of the questions people have asked and a couple of others that I've added. From Jean Rotman, I couldn't help saying, Rotman is German, but it means red man. So are you American Indians? Excuse me. My husband and I have been discussing retirement strategies lately and have been wondering more about your and Master's predictions regarding a major world depression. I know you have talked about this for many decades, citing our Guru's earlier warnings of dire calamities to come. However, I am wondering if you know when things are going to get really bad. 
as a couple in our 40s, is this something we might encounter during our lifetime? I have to say that I think we're already heading into that depression. Master said that it would be much worse than the depression of the 30s. He said, I, I remember a Brigu prediction that I got in India, oh, about 50 years ago. It said, in the future in his country, when there will be weeping in every home, he will be one of the causes of its upliftment and whatever. But the thing is that he said it would be in my lifetime. And uh, I think that that has begun already. You can't believe what Washington tells you. They lie. But right now, in derivatives, the debt indebtedness from derivatives alone is about a quadrillion dollars. You don't get out of that kind of thing by printing more. Master said to Sister Mira that the dollar will not be worth the paper it is printed on. So I would say to all of you, live in this community and uh, join hands together to build for that kind of security. The time is now. You won't be able to do it so easily later. You know, runaway depressions have happened several times in several countries in our lifetime or not very long before it. In Germany, <clears throat> in, the in 1923, they had a hyperinflation. And a sausage, uh, a certain amount of money would buy two sausages in the morning. That very afternoon, it would buy only one sausage. One man took his paycheck from the office in a wheelbarrow. That's how little money was worth then. And he left his wheelbarrow outside a shop because he figured that nobody would steal that money. It was just useless anyway. He came out of the store a few minutes later to find the money blowing all over the street. The wheelbarrow had been stolen. <laughs> we must realize that these times are not going to be easy. I, I do urge you with all my heart to take these words seriously. From Shane McCamey, is there an extreme time sensitivity for preparing for the worst? I think I have answered that question. Will there be, the, be clear warning signs running up to the problems? I think the fact that <clears throat> even people who are trying to defend the system are saying that employment is uh, very down, people are not getting jobs, they're getting fired. Things are already happening and there is no cure. Everything that they have tried so far has been a bust. They can't keep print, printing trillions of dollars, it just won't work. The signs are all around us. Don't read the headlines. Read those who have some knowledge of these matters. Are there geographical regions that are most in danger? Well, I've certainly said that Europe isn't very safe and Russia is far from safe. But you know, let me put it this way. After World War I, there was a man who was absolutely sure there would be a World War II. And he searched all over the world to try to find the safest place on the globe. And in 1938, he bought land on the island of Guam. Well, <laughs> you know what happened on Guam. It was the center of the Pacific War in World War II. So I would say the safest place on earth is where God leads you, 
live with God, live in God, have Him, His hand in yours. He will always take you to the right place. You know, the way I found Ananda was very interesting. I was in, I, I'm not much of an artist, but I've painted a few paintings, mainly when I couldn't find somebody who could capture my idea. And I went to a shop in North Beach in San Francisco, and uh, I said to them, uh, I tried, I wanted him to frame these shops. And while I was standing there, somebody came in and talked to the owner, who apparently was a friend of his, talking about this red-hot buy that he'd found of land up in the country near Nevada City. And I was very intrigued because I was looking for land myself. And uh, it turned out that he wanted people to go in on it with him. And I came up and went to the meditation retreat. And uh, it was just exactly what I wanted. I felt that Master wanted me to take three parcels. God will show you if you want to live for him. And that's the most, most intelligent thing you can do is not use your own intelligence, but depend more on his, his wisdom. What do you advise for those in relationships with persons not on this path? Well, one thought that comes to my mind before I talk about it in a more down-to-earth way is that this is something that people don't realize. When any one member of a family dedicates his life to God, it brings a real blessing on the whole family. In Tibet, they had this idea that one son should become a monk, one son of every family, because it would help to uplift the whole family. The family into which you were born, there is a karmic link there. And when you, um, when you really dedicate yourself to, to God, the more deep your dedication, the more you uplift even people that you never see because they may be distant cousins or something. But Master told me something even more interesting. He said that when you achieve final liberation, seven generations backwards and forwards become liberated. Now, does that mean they all, without any effort on their part, achieved liberation? No. It means that they achieve different levels according to their own level of purity, but it may well mean that they achieve freedom from reincarnation in this world, or at least that they achieve. As I, I asked a great saint in India, one whom Master told me, one whom Master told me was a, a liberated soul, and I asked him this question, and he said it's like when somebody becomes made the emperor of a country, his whole country, his whole family, is raised socially and they become dukes and different things like that. And so it is that <clears throat> when you achieve liberation, seven generations backwards and forwards, and they don't have to be sons and daughters because most people who achieve liberation are already celibate and don't have children. But one time, and this is a very interesting point for, for us, one time Dr. Lewis asked Master, <clears throat> well, what about the disciples? And Master said, oh, they come first. I have been very impressed with the quality of devotees in Ananda. And I think that if you really make an effort in this life 
to find God, God will give you a great blessing. I, I, I can promise that. What is your favorite prayer? Well, Divine Mother, may thy love shine forever on the sanctuary of my devotion, and may I be able to awaken thy love in all hearts. When I read Autobiography of a Yogi, I'm sure you all know the story. I read it in New York. I was staying in Scarsdale. And I took the next bus across the country. It just absolutely changed my life. I had never even known that you could live without eating meat. To me, a balanced meal was a hamburger with a thin sliver of tomato and a thin slice piece of lettuce and on a white bun. To me, that was a balanced diet. When I read that Master was a vegetarian, I became a vegetarian. Haven't eaten meat since. That was 62 years ago. I crossed the country. I had two desires. One was, this is such a wonderful teaching. I want everyone to have it. I wanted to share it with everybody in the world because it was just what, what humanity needed. And of course, more than anything else, I wanted to find God. And I had never imagined that I would ever ask anybody to be my guru. I didn't even know the word guru, but I didn't think of following anybody because I never met anybody I considered wise. But when I read his book, I was completely convinced. I remember when my mother, because she was more spiritually inclined, I'm not basically a religious person. I'm a spiritual person, that's a difference. But I can't, I can't help remembering many years ago, I was about 17, and uh, it was Christmas Eve when everybody went to church. And in the Anglican church, they serve wine. It is the priest who gets to guzzle it all. And uh, um, I uh, was getting, the line was long, and I, I was getting very thirsty. And I knelt at the altar rail, and he put this cup to my lips. Um, he tried to take it away, and he had to force to take it away. And, <laughs> When he finally got it away, there was this loud sucking sound. I, I have to say that my religious background is not strong, but spiritual seeking was definitely a part of my life. I wanted to know what truth is all about, and I, wanted, I finally realized that truth had to be God. It could not be anything else. And I decided then that I would live for God and try to find God. But I... Um, when when Mother tried to talk to me about miracles and saints and so on, I'd never read a story about a saint. I didn't know that such people existed. I felt saints were people who went around patting children on the head and helping the little old ladies across the street or something, but nothing uh, um, serious. And when I when Mother talked about miracles, I said, "Come off it, Mother." But when I came when I was reading Autobiography of a Yogi, from page one, the vibrations were so strong that when Lairi Mahashaya materialized on page eight, materialized before Master's father, I just couldn't say no. I knew that this man was absolutely sincere. The first words I addressed to him when I met him were, I want to be your disciple. That was 62 years ago, 
and I've not regretted it. I've been so grateful that I met him in this lifetime, that I had a chance to come and be with him. And what are the fruits of all that seeking? I have to say a bliss that keeps getting deeper and deeper. Everybody in the world is seeking that same bliss, but they don't know. And so some people think that they will get bliss or happiness or at least get the pain out of their hearts by revenge, by hatred, by all sorts of negative things. But everybody in the world, and this gives you a motive for you can't help loving people when you know that even the worst mafioso, really what he wants is bliss. He just hasn't understood yet. It will take him a few incarnations, quite a few, but he has to come to that point because Jesus didn't come on this world to show us how great he was. He came to show us how great we are in our potential. I will never forget that man in Australia who came to me once after a lecture and he said, well, I've heard you talking about God. You know, what can you say to me? I'm an atheist. What will you say that I can, I can respect? And I said, well, I, try, I thought a moment. And I said, well, why don't you think of God as the highest potential you can imagine for yourself? And he looked stunned. For a moment, he sort of scratched his head a little bit. And he said, well, I can live with that. And indeed, indeed, we can all live with that because we all want to achieve our own highest potential. This is what America is all about. It doesn't mean all people are equal. It means everybody has, a, has or should have an equal opportunity to achieve his own highest potential. But in the end, that highest potential is to become like Christ to become like Buddha or Yogananda. Your highest potential is simply this, that God didn't create you except out of his own consciousness. You are, every one of you, is a manifestation of that infinite bliss. And once you find who you really are, then you know this is what life is all about. Everything that people are seeking, none of it ever gives them what they want. I've often thought of Howard Hughes, how when he, a week before he died, some reporter was able to get through to him and said, are you happy? No, I can't say I'm happy. Of course he wasn't happy. How can you be happy if you want money? Money won't give it to you. Nothing will give it to you. You are that. You must become that. You don't have to acquire anything. You must become who you really are. And that's what this path is all about. Mari asks, I'm wondering, what is happening with your screenplays? I've enjoyed reading the manuscript for the Time Tunnel and heard there was a work on one in Italy about your life or master's life or both. Would you tell us what is happening with this part of your work and life? Well, you know, <clears throat> my ambition when I was a young man was to become a playwright. And I wanted to be a playwright because I wanted to help share truth with people and to uplift people. And two things became very clear to me as I kept on seeking truth. One was that I didn't know truth. And so why should I share my ignorance with other people? And the other was 
that through plays, people's lives haven't been changed much. And yet they are one means. And so although I gave up writing at that time and came to Master and for many years lived with him, followed his teachings and so on, he himself encouraged me to write. And he said, your, life, your, lot, your work in this life is writing, editing, and lecturing. And uh, I know he didn't speak of communities because that would not have been a safe subject at that time for reasons I'm sure most of you could understand. But writing was something that he did tell me to do. And as I got into his teachings, then I began to realize that I could do something in, in that line because God has given me a certain uh, ability to express myself, not only clearly, but simply so that people can understand what I'm talking about. I remember a book I read by Dane Rudyard, who was a famous astrologer, and there was one absolutely fabulous paragraph. I read it time and time and time again. I couldn't make head or tails what he was saying. Most people, when they write, want to show to the other people how intelligent and how brilliant they are. I'm not interested in that. I'm interested in reaching people. And so in my books, I have tried to show how Master's teachings are really applicable to every possible range of modern needs. It's an absolutely astounding thing. You know, this is a book that will be coming out this summer by Catherine Kairavi. It's called Two Souls, Four Lives. It's about the life of William the Conqueror and his son and heir, Henry I. And it's a very interesting thing for this reason, that Master, you wouldn't have expected him to say it. You'd think that he'd keep mum about it. But he, Master said that he was William the Conqueror. For me, this was, uh, well, a bit of a shock. I grew up under the English system. And in England, William the Conqueror is considered one of the great villains of history. And here I found he was my own guru. Well... <clears throat> I decided that I needed to do some research, and I found out that he was a great man, but he was an avatar. Master has been an avatar, which is to say, one who is one with God, and then comes back to help others to achieve that state. And Master said that I've been one with him for a long time. I've come back, I was liberated many lives ago. William was such a person. In the Bhagavad Gita, it says that when virtue declines, and evil increases, then I incarnate in this world as an avatar to destroy evil, not evildoers, mind you, but to destroy evil and to place virtue back on its throne. And if you look at William's life in that light, then you see that although he is a warrior, sometimes these avatars have to come in fierce roles. They're not ordinary saints. They're people who have a mission with, for God William had such a mission, and one of the things that he did, you see, England was a country separate from Europe, and in organizing England, his is the only system in, from medieval times that survived those times. In fact, a very interesting fact is that the oldest continuous government in the world is that of England. And you know what the second oldest is? United States of America, believe it or not. New as we are, 
All other countries have undergone such changes. But anyway, William was able to take that country and he had to do it with great force. He had to do it in a very ruthless way sometimes. But he had to bring truth in a way that man might not have... He was not politely saying, please, this come into the dining room, let's have a good meal. No, that is not the role of an avatar. There is not the role of any great avatar. And so he had to bring that island under, and his son Henry helped to conclude that. Well, I gave Kyra, Catherine Kyrie this job 11 or so years ago, and I asked her to do research and see if there's some way that she can show how that soul could have been Yogananda. And she's done a great job. It will come out later this, this year. It'll be out by August of this year. But you know, one very interesting thing about William is that his body was in some way exhumed 430 years after his physical death. And it was found to be incorrupt. He was a saint, but he had a particular role to perform. Now, why did Master even bother to tell us that? Because his role in this lifetime is very similar. Not that he has come as an avenging angel, but because he came with great force to change an entire civilization. The things that he set in motion, you will see, or your children or grandchildren will see, that they have an impact on uh, what he taught will have an impact on the entire world. I have shown in my books, or tried to show, how his teachings apply in new ways to every avenue of life, in politics, in family life, in child raising, in business, in thing, uh, field after field of modern life. My books have been dealing with these subjects in order to help people to know that uh, this is the direction that the world needs to go to bring about that kind of attunement to energy, which is the sign of Dwapara Yuga. So, in the, in the life of Master, his role was very similar to that of William the Conqueror. A very interesting thing that Catherine discovered, two well-known historians have remarked that everything that we are today, we owe in some way to the life of William the Conqueror. An astounding statement. But these great avatars come with a mission very different. Jesus, too, when you read about gentle Jesus, meek and mild, how do, you, how do you explain his going into the temple and driving the money changers out? And how do you explain his doing it? He didn't say, now, boys, it isn't nice to be changing money in the temple. Don't you think you ought to go and uh, do it somewhere else? He drove them out. And how could one man drive a pack of people who tradition had sanctioned being there? How could he get away with it? It took power. And he had that kind of power. Every great avatar who comes into this world comes with tremendous power. And they are the ones who can change humanity. Now, if you get into their ray, you will find, you know, right now, there's a war going on in heaven between the forces of light and the forces of darkness. 
And if you're on the side of the angels, if you're on the side of the forces of light, in this time you will receive blessings far more than in peaceful times. Somebody did a very interesting experiment. He regressed people to their past lives and asked them why they had been born at this time in history, knowing that there would be such hardship as we, as we face, uh, as we have faced and will face. He said not one spoke about the hardship. Every one of them spoke about the opportunity. The opportunity for growth. When you live in hard times, this is when you can grow the most. Remember that beautiful story of St. Teresa of Avila. When she was crossing a river, she was in her old age, and she was going to found a new monastery. And as they were fording a, a stream, her horse lost its footing because it was the stream was in spate. And she, she was swept away by this flood. And her, her disciples, her students, were very sad because they felt she must have been drowned. But in fact, Jesus was standing on the other bank and suddenly she found himself standing in front of him, completely dry. And he smiled at her and he said, don't feel too badly, Teresa. This is how I treat all my friends. And she said, ah, oh, my Lord, that is why you have so few. <laughs> Remember, when you seek God, he will give you tests. He wants to know that you mean business. He wants, you've been turning your back on him for incarnations. He wants to know that you do mean it. How can you keep going? Always remember that nothing will ever work for you. Everything will fail in the end. Only God will finally give you what your soul has always longed for. And many people, they come on the path and they think, oh, here's a chance to be famous. Here's a chance to be rich. Here's a chance to do this, that, and the other thing. It never works. Always they have to come back. I remember Mr. Cuaron, the center leader in Mexico City, and Master said to him, I lost sight of you for a few incarnations. And he said, now I won't lose sight again. And Mr. Cuaron every now and then would remind him and say, Master, remember your promise. Master said, I remember. I won't lose sight of you again. In other words, he saw that he had reached that level of purity where he knew that the only thing he wanted was God. I plead with all of you, why waste time? Do give your life to God. Well, let me go on here with questions. I have a couple of questions for Swamiji. What should we create here in Portland? What else should we have? Well, I don't really know the answer to that. Because what we're trying to do is help people to be more and more in love with God. And I would say that the opportunities for serving come when they come. People many years ago asked, what is the future of Ananda? I say, as you walk, the door opens, take the door that will open. Don't take the door that is slammed in your face. But remember what we were trying to do is build a community where people can live together in brotherhood and harmony and always try to do those things and to build those things which will 
bring greater harmony. You do need businesses to support yourselves. I think that it's a good thing to look for some way of self-support. Internet has a, gives wonderful opportunities that way. And uh, do, I don't know how much ground you have for building, for growing food, I should say, but do try to grow food. We have here at Ananda Village um, the permaculture system. And if you don't know that, come here and learn it because it's a very good system. There are ways to support yourselves. I think food is more important than anything else. I've read people talking about the future and the instability of the future and urging people to buy gold. Well, you can't eat gold. You can't eat silver. Food is much more important. And if you can grow your own food, that will be a great salvation for you. Another thing is to stock food. There are companies, there's one here in Nevada City, that helps you to, uh, that sells products that have been freeze-dried or in whatever way they preserve for years. I would say invest in some of that. Some of those things can help you in very difficult times. Don't neglect that statement. When there will be weeping in every home. You know, when you take somebody who jumps from a little table, he's not going to hurt himself. But if he jumps from a third-story window, he may kill himself. America is a rich country, and when America loses its wealth, its suffering will be much greater than a country like India, where they already are used to poverty. Please take my word seriously. There are several other questions that I would like to ask. One is, what hope samadhi for one who can't even concentrate? Well, the thing is, don't think that you have to do everything. First of all, yoga will help you to concentrate. It will help you to keep your mind one focus. The more you practice angsal, the more you practice meditating here, the more your mind will become calm. But remember another thing. Finally, the Christian fundamentalists are right. They only are wrong in application. Everything comes down to the grace of God. If, if the grace of God is not as if God's saying, oh, I like your pretty blue eyes and I'm going to give you a special blessing. The grace of God is like sunshine on the side of a building. And if the curtains in the rooms are closed, the sunshine can't come in. And the purpose of yoga is to open up one's consciousness so that he can receive that grace. In your meditation, don't think that by willpower you will achieve God. By your meditation, open yourself up to him more and more, especially from the heart. Without heart quality, Sri Yukteswar, the Gyanavatar of our age, said that you cannot take a single step toward God without the heart's natural love. At the end of his book, Holy Science, which is a very deep and very gyanic kind of book, he says, I hope I have demonstrated that God is love. And I can't help smiling when I read that. But in fact, love is everything. And even more than love, emphasize bliss. Because in love, there's often a wish for response. In bliss, there's nothing but giving. 
the more you live in bliss, the more you just don't care what other people, you know. You know, when SRF threw me out, <clears throat> certainly I was tempted to feel bitter, but I thought, why lose twice? I love them. I've always loved them. I can't, I can't change my feelings just because of the way other people treat me. But more than that, I thought, if, I'm, if I don't give love, I suffer. And so I chose deliberately, consciously, to continue to love them. I still love them. I want nothing but unity and harmony. This is when you live not as a reaction to other people, but from your own consciousness. Do those things which will make you happy. Do those things which will make you more loving. Do develop those attitudes. Not don't worry what other people think. Develop those attitudes that will lead you toward bliss. Remember, it's all directional. None of it can be said, this is it, this is not it. It's a direction toward greater and greater bliss. But this I can assure you, that the more you follow this path and the more you live in that, that attempt to find bliss, to become bliss, the more it just opens up before you. I've been on this path, as I said a few moments ago, 62 years. I can say I'm grateful for every moment of it. And have I had my tests? Yes, of course I've had my tests. Being separated from SRF was the greatest of all. But I'm grateful for every one. Because they have every, I've always seen that no matter how hard the test that God gives us, if we have our mind fixed on that pole star of God's love, then everything works out in the end. I remember when I was first thrown out, Ananda Moima, that great woman saint in India, sent a message by a disciple. She couldn't write herself. And she said, take this as your guru's kripa, your guru's grace. Without grace, that's one word I can't accept. But I found in the end that it was the right word. It was his grace that took me out. It was his grace that made it possible for me to write all these books, for me to found all these communities, for me to write all this music. And I didn't do any of it. And that's another beautiful thing, that if you feel that you are doing it, you can't do well. But if you give up the thought of I, the whole spiritual path is a question of giving up this thought of I, that I am separate from you and you are separate from him and her and so on, and realize that he is the one doing everything through me. And you might say, well, my mistakes? Yes. Master said God is pleased when you give even your mistakes to him. And when you say to him, God, you made me make that mistake. Please make me do better next time. The more you give him credit and don't make it blame, but understand that he is the doer in everything. You can't breathe without him. The more you do that, the more you will see there's no such thing as sin. There is only error. One of the greatest mistakes people make is thinking I'm a sinner. You know, when I was young, I was 21 years old, and I used to smoke. I can't say I smoked heavily, but I did smoke. And I, when I decided that I wanted to be a hermit, then I thought, whoever heard of a hermit who smokes? I thought, how could I smoke? I, how could I go down to the local shop and buy cigarettes? 
And so I decided to give up smoking. And uh, it was like what Mark Twain he said, said. He said, smoking is the easiest thing in the world to give up. I've done it a thousand times. And I tried again and again, but I failed again and again. I wouldn't smoke in the morning, but that lunchtime coffee, a cigarette tasted so good, and I'd have it. Well, here's the important point I want to come to. Every time I failed, I didn't say I have failed. I said I haven't yet succeeded. Never tell yourself you are a sinner. Never tell yourself I have failed. Never tell yourself I'm no good. If you keep on trying, even to the last moment of breath, God will save you. Don't worry about your faults. The amazing thing that you will find as you, as you follow this path is that those things which seem to you absolutely impossible to be given up, you'll find that one day you'll wonder what all the excitement was all about. It's so simple once you're out of it. And when you get out of it, what you see is like the story in the Bhagavad Gita between the war of Kurukshetra, at the war of Kurukshetra between the good side and the bad side. And Krishna in chapter 2, when Arjuna is saying, I can't fight this battle, it's too difficult. And because he sees all the faults that he has to overcome. And Krishna says, there's no death. And what he means on a deeper level is this, that you don't kill any fault when you get rid of it. You merely redirect its energy in a positive direction. You've had a greed for food and you decide to have, uh, to have control. It's not that you miss the food. You have your desire for pleasure is no longer in food. I remember many years ago, one of the little tests I went through was in arthritis. And when I finally got my hip operated on, the doctor had to replace two inches of bone. So much had been worn away by walking. If you saw me walking in a crowd, you'd see me. I was just in uh, a lot of pain. But I found that when that was overcome, I became stronger. And the test didn't matter. Nothing matters. You're grateful for everything. You're grateful for the hardest test. You know, when you have a bone broken and the bone mends, that part of the bone which grows to correct that, that fracture or that break is stronger than the bone around it. And so it is that when you've overcome some fault, that will become your greatest strength. So don't ever put yourself down. Don't ever say, I'm no good. Don't ever say, I'm a sinner. Say that a saint is a sinner who never gave up. That is the goal of a free life. And so, when does... I'm going to put my glasses on here. I can read everything except my own handwriting. When does recognition begin of friends from past lives? Well, you know, it's not a when. All spiritual development is a gradual growth from ignorance to wisdom. But I have found increasingly in my life that I meet people that I know. I don't know how I know them, but they're, they're old friends of mine. I was in a TV program in Delhi a few couple of years ago, I think it was. And uh, 
Everybody in that room was either an old family member or an old friend. I knew them, and they knew me somehow, because they were all on my side. It was, it's a beautiful thing to see that your friendships never die. You are attracted to them wherever you're born. I was born in Romania. Master came to Los Angeles, but destiny drew me there. You're, you will be drawn to your friends as with a magnet. And you will also be drawn to your enemies. And sometimes enemies are born into the same family so they can work it out at close quarters. But in time, you realize that everything is the same. You know, Buddha said our reason for loving everybody is that everyone at one time or another has been close to us. That's an extraordinary statement. Not just in this one planet. We've, we, there are many, many planets. What it means really is that when it says in the Bhagavad Gita, and also there's a passage in the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam, that when God creates the universe in the day of Brahma, he throws all these souls out again. And many, many, it says in the uh, Master's interpretation of the Rubaiyat, Many are still wandering in delusion at the end of that day of Brahma, billions of years. Mind you, you may have come back for days and days of Brahma. How is it possible? Because the ways of erring are so many. One time Master Norman was asking, said to Master, Sir, I don't think I have a very... Uh, Good karma. Master replied with great vigor. He said, remember this. It takes very, very, very good karma even to want to know God. I'm sure that all of you in this room today want God. But most people don't. I remember one relative of mine. I tried to talk him about these truths. And he said, maybe all very interesting. Frankly, I'm not interested. So... I just had to stop talking about it. But do you find him quickly after that? Relatively, yes. Relatively, no, depending on which direction you're looking at relativity. I asked Master one time, have I been your disciple for thousands of years? He said, it's been a long time, that's all I will say. It does take time. Don't think in terms of time. You know, the beautiful thing is that once you're out of it, Think of all the souls that have attained freedom. Think of all the great saints that there have been. Not one has ever said, what a scam. They don't. They say it's the most wonderful experience, the most wonderful adventure that ever was. Just think if you had a man born, a boy, born into a good home, and he got a good job because his father had the influence to get him that job. And he met the boss's daughter, and he married the daughter, and when the do boss died, he, we, we lost our connection now. What's that? They lost it on that end. They'll call back. What's that? They lost the connection there. They'll call back in a minute. Okay. Swami, this is what Skype is. This is Skype.
So, okay. Yes, we can hear you, yes. Okay, fine. Now you tell me, what was I talking about? <laughs> There's a story without any drama. Yes, this, this boy born into a good home, and everything goes right for him. Wouldn't you put that book down probably bef long before you finished it, thinking what a bore. But if that same boy is brought, born into a poor home and with a great deal of effort, studies at night, maybe by candlelight, and rises, gets a job, rises in the firm, all the same things happen to him. But he comes from such difficulty. And what a wonderful thing it is. You'd say, what a great story. Well, so it is with the soul. If you know, the story is that God, when he created the universe, created everybody perfect. So they all sought and sat in meditation and merged back into God. So God thought, well, I'd better create delusion to keep this play going. And so he created delusion. And so we've had to wander. But the wonderful thing is that when you, when you attain that timeless state, you don't see any time as having passed. It's all just an absolutely wonderful adventure. And whereas it's true that most people, when they find liberation, they've had it. And only a few people come back as avatars out of their deep compassion for humanity. Yet every single one says this is the greatest thing that could possibly have happened to me. And again, if you look at everybody in the world and try to find one class of people who can say, yes, I found what I was looking for, you'd have to say, it's the saints. Other people may think they found it, but they're living on hope. Once they realize their hopes, it's a disillusionment. Everything is a disappointment. Only the saints have that perfect happiness. And the beautiful thing about it is that every saint is different. What you do is you find your true self. You express that infinite bliss in a way that no one else in all eternity will, ex will express it. One of the most wonderful things Master said in uh, um, <clears throat> his definition, when the uh, definition of God that Sa Swami Shankaracharya gave was Satchitananda, ever-existing, ever-conscious, ever-new bliss. But Master added that, ever-new, because the bliss is constantly new, and in every soul it's expressed in a unique way. Master wrote in an autobiography of a yogi that every atom is dowered with individuality. This life that you're living is a fantastic adventure. Please understand what a wonderful pilgrimage you're on because that is really what life is all about. And you will meet more and more people. Once you become liberated from this earth plane, Everybody you meet, you will know all the people that you've known for all those incarnations. And what a wonderful fulfillment that will be. So let's look further. Do blessings come to others? Well, I've answered that one. Is there one panacea for every ill? Yes. That panacea is bliss. I remember just a few days ago, I was in Palo Alto outside Kepler's bookstore and I had a group of friends with me and we were drinking something there in the cafe next door 
<clears throat> and there was a man sitting at a table uh, next to ours. And he had such a grim expression on his face as he was working. And he thought, doesn't he know that the reason he's working so hard is that he hopes to find bliss? Then why can't he work with bliss? Whatever you're doing in life, you're doing it for one of two reasons. One, to get away from pain, and the other to find happiness. Can't you work with happiness? Don't think that ha happiness will lie <clears throat> around the next corner or over the, the next hill. Work with happiness, you'll f suddenly find you are happy. God is with you right now. God is the God of the present tense. Somebody asked me the question, and I didn't answer it well. Not sure I answered it at all. <laughs> About my plans for movies and so on, I said I wanted to be a playwright. Well, it's an interesting thing, but it occurred to me just a year ago or less that uh, I don't know a thing about movie writing, but I do know something about playwriting. And uh, maybe it would be fun to try to write a movie. And so it came to me just amazingly quickly. In a week I had one movie done, another week the next movie done. Playwriting is much more difficult than movie writing. On a play you've got people up on that stage, you have to keep the scenes the same, and so you've got to find something interesting for people to say. That takes a lot of work. But uh, with a movie, as soon as the energy begins to dwindle, it's moved to a new scene. Of course I'm making it seem ridiculously easy, which it isn't. But anyway, I have written two movies. One of them is called The Way Shower. And it begins with Jesus and Babaji meeting in the Himalayas. Master said this is what actually happened that uh, Jesus came to Babaji and he said, what is happening to my church? He said, they've for they've, they still do good works, but they've forgotten the important thing, communion with God, communion with their inner self, their higher self. He said, let us send a messenger to the West. And so it was that Yogananda came. And in that movie, you see, after this conversation, Yogananda coming down with a danda, a staff, and then going down into the mist, and these shadowy figures converging. And the next scene is this little baby being brought by, this is the baby Mukunda being brought by his mother for the blessings of Lahiri Mahashai. And then I tell stories, some of them from autobiography of a yogi, some from uh, other stories that I know about Master. Then I bring him into a into the modern uh, life in America, and beautiful stories like, uh, well, of miracles and so on, bringing people back to life. And uh, one time when he had a few guests in Encinitas, and they had the processing plant there where they made carrot juice, and he was talking about it. So he said, well, bring a pitcher of carrot juice. And the monk said, Master, it's all been drunk. We don't have any. We can't. Give it this quickly, and we don't have any carrots in the plant at the moment. Master said, never mind, just bring what you have. So they brought about a half a glassful and a big pitcher. And Master said, pour it. And so he poured, and the pitcher remained just constantly at the same level. 
They had about 12 people there, and there was enough carriages for everybody. Master didn't say anything, but the disciple knew and told us the story. And there was another story, you know, Master said that casual kind of miracles are not performed except for people who are highly developed. And he, he, he said to us one time, among the disciples, the most advanced is Rajashi, St. Lini called him then. The next is Mr. Black in Detroit, who was a businessman there. The third is Sister Kanamata. I asked him at that time, what about Faye Wright, Diamata? He said, well, she still has her life to live. That was his answer. But one time, this is a story that Mr. Black told me. It's quite a charming story. There was a heavy rain, and Mr. Black was visiting Master in Encinitas. And uh, rain was falling when he got word that Master wanted to go out for a drive. And so Mr. Black closed the door of his room, went from his room to the front door. It must have taken less than a minute to make that journey. Came out of doors. Everything was dry. The car was dry. The ground was dry. The sky was blue. Master looked at Mr. Black with a little twinkle in his eyes, and he said, for you, Oliver. Well, this kind of thing is, uh, you might say, extraordinary. But this is the movie, and it brings me up to the point of uh, where Master left his body, and then how I have been able to carry his work on as he told me, he told me many times, you have a great work to do. And uh, the, we've had quite a few responses to this movie, to the script in Hollywood, and everybody is extremely excited about getting this movie done. So I think we'll have something real there. Another very interesting thing is that just two days before I left India, and some of you know this, many of you probably do not, but I got a reading from an ancient thing that was written 5,000 years ago in Treta Yuga when people could know the future as very few do now. And it wrote about the lives of people now and, and in the future, including now. And it, um, uh, they, w I went there for a reading, and when they read it, they became extremely excited, and they insisted that I come over, that they come, that I come over and get this reading from them. And I said, well, no, I've got a birthday party and I have to say goodbye to people. I'm leaving for Italy and the West. And they said, well, then in that case, we'll have to come to you, which they didn't do. But they said they'd never had such a reading before. And it's very interesting. In that reading, it said that he will do uh, plays, films, and... Uh, it said that another, I felt he was, they were cursing me in this one, but if it comes true, we'll see. said I'd live another seven years. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> and, uh, but the interesting thing was, it sounds like a, one of those stories you read in fairy tales, but as they were reading this thing, there was a heavy lightning storm, lightning, thunder, rain just in a deluge, and trees being blown over. And by the time I came out onto the street to go to my birthday party, for which I was an hour and a half late, and people were kind enough to stay there, but uh, the streets were completely flooded. It's, it doesn't sound real, but here we are in this 
workaday world, which turns out to be far from workaday. Anyway, it did speak about these films and it spoke about the future and it was uh, very interesting, let's put it that way. So this life that we're going to see coming up now, starting just about now, and it's an interesting thing that they said that your work will really begin from now on. Well, let's see what more questions there are. Is it a good practice to dedicate your meditation or kriyas to a person who is seriously ill, or is it better to stick to healing prayers at the end of meditation? I think dedicating your kriyas to somebody can be a very good thing. I would recommend it. I may be wrong in doing so, but to me it makes sense. What suggestions do you have for new aspirants on the path to help avoid the pitfalls along the way, distractions, etc.? Well, you know, there are two things that are important. One is never lose your love for God. Always keep in your mind your reasons for loving Him. And uh, keep your heart. Your heart is more important than your brain. When the aspiration of the heart is upward, then you are safe. But as soon as you allow those aspirations to go down, then you're in troubled water. Always make sure the direction of your energy is upward. And that comes from the heart and its energies are turned upward. There's another thing, and this is something that people must understand. It says in the Bible about Jesus Christ, as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God. That to receive Jesus Christ or any great master doesn't mean signing on the dotted line and saying, I believe, I believe. It means receiving his consciousness into your own. You've got to get rid of this thought that you're separate. But the thing is that you're already in delusion thinking that you're not separate. It's impossible to get rid of ego consciousness with ego consciousness. There's a story master told me in this regard about a, a man who was being troubled by a demon. And he had read in the Shastras and the scriptures that if you take a, a, a handful of powder and recite a particular mantra in it and throw it on the demon, then the uh, demon will be expelled. And so he did this, and after he'd finished, the demon left. He said, before you could even say your mantra, I myself got into that powder. What that story meant was that the very ego with which you're trying to get rid of delusion is already caught in that delusion. You can't get rid of the disease with the disease. So how do we ever find it? You have to have attunement with one who is one with God. And attunement with Master or any great avatar, it's true that you need the contact of people who are individuals who have lived in the body. You need that personal contact. But the guru of a, the soul of an avatar can work through his disciples. And so it isn't as if that power dies with the death of, uh, his, of the guru himself. This power will continue as Christianity has continued, Hinduism, Buddhism, and so on. And so 
attunement with them. I remember Master saying to one of the, uh, to a group of the men, some of you will fall, a few of you will fall, but it needn't be if you would stay in tune. What he said in the churches was not always what he said to us personally. In personal contact with us, he stressed more than anything else the importance of being in tune. How can you be in tune? Ask yourself constantly, is this what you want? Ask God that. Try always to please him. Don't say, I want it. Say, is this what you want? You will find there is a story, a true story. Norman told us this. The Mount Washington has a very steep approach. And at the bottom of the hill, there's this hairpin turn. And Norman, a brother disciple of mine, was driving a big flatbed truck. And he just came to that, just was approaching that hairpin turn, beyond which there was a steep embankment. And if he'd gone over that, he would have been killed. And suddenly the brake gave. And he kept pumping on the brake and it didn't have any effect. So he looked up and he asked Master, is this what you want? All of a sudden, as if a big hand had been placed on the hood of that truck, it was brought to a stop and he was able to bring it to the curb and stop it. And uh, I remember another case where Joseph Carbone, Bimalananda, he was carrying a hod of mud up uh, a tower for plastering at India Center. And as he reached for the last rung, about 20 feet up from the ground, he missed the rung and this hod of mud, a plaster, pulled him backward. There was nothing he could do. And so he just chanted, Om, thinking of Master. Suddenly his body was raised and he was able to grasp that rung. Master said, but we've seen again and again his protection is with us. I talked about that, that uh, prophecy of Brigu that I got many, many years ago. And it said in there that there was a danger of sudden death. Well, one time I was out at the desert retreat and suddenly as I was walking home, a flock of crows came flying around my head. And I thought, well, this has to be a bad omen. And two days later, I, I'd been sleeping out on the terrace. Two days later, I went to make up my bed. I separated the sheets. I found a black widow spider between them, squashed. Somehow in my sleep, I had turned over and killed this thing, which could have killed me. Another time, I was in Puri, in Italy, in India. And I grasped a microphone to set up for a great event, and there was a short circuit. And the whole 220 or 30 volts went through my body. It lifted me off the ground. And in that split second, the fuse blew. And uh, my life was saved. And a third time, I had bought in India, I had bought a Lambretta, which is a motor scooter. And I brought it to India. I had it shipped. And when it came, I opened the crate and... Uh, took the, the lambretta out and turned the key. I didn't realize it was in gear. I was seated on this thing. When I turned the key, suddenly it took off. I was in a brick-walled courtyard, and I had a, about a second and a half to figure out what to do about it. Somehow, I managed to find 
a way to get it in neutral and put the brake on. I didn't even know the machine, but I stopped that close to the, from the brick wall. So these were all signs of how the soul is protected when he has a true guru and when he lives for God. Understand that your life, if you live for God, is protected. And the greatest protection you can ever have is his love. So let's see what more we have here. Because my time's running out, your time's running out, everybody's time else is here. I would appreciate your speaking about humility in modern times. I understand humility, as taught in the past, was a virtue. People used to get the sense of when someone was humble from the heart, etc., etc. You know, the thing with humility is most people think it's self-abasement. A person can talk about himself all the time and not have any sense of pride. It's not a put-up job. It's something you feel in your heart. When you can feel that everything you are doing, God is doing through you, then you have humility. Humility is never saying, I can't do it. I've always felt, I can't do it, but God can do it. And I've let him, I haven't done anything that it wasn't his power that did it. One time in Hollywood Church, many years ago, it was about 1955, I, I was in the middle of a lecture, the church was full, and I suddenly remembered that Master had said, when you talk, then feel that God is talking through you. So I suddenly had this thought, well, in that case, why don't I just let God talk? So I stopped talking. Well, you can imagine, a hundred or more people sitting there waiting for, you to, for your next word, and you're standing there. After about two minutes, people were perspiring, thinking I had frozen with fear. But no, I was just comfortably waiting for God to say something. But after two minutes, I decided perhaps I'd um, given the experiment enough time to prove itself. And I decided that Master, what Master said was the truth. He said, I, we must have the right attitude, is I will reason, I will will, I will act. But guide thou my reason, will, and activity in everything. So I had to do it, but I had to feel that it was his inspiration coming through me. And I have found again and again that if I asked him, suddenly I knew what to do. If it was a note or a melody, it was there. If it was some sort of word, you know, you met, somebody mentioned in this when they were asking about my present projects, the time tunnel. If you haven't had time to read it, try to get it. I'm sure that uh, the Glazers will be happy to share it with you. But it's a children's story, and I, I couldn't believe it when this happened, because I just in an idle moment picked up The Wizard of Oz, and I got as far as the yellow brick road, when suddenly the inspiration came, I can write a children's story, and I wrote this children's story. It's 180 pages long, I did the whole thing in two weeks, and everything was just given to me. There was this, I mean, sometimes it's just amazing. For example, there's a dog in this thing. The time tunnel is people enter this tunnel, and they're able to go backwards and forwards in time. And it's a great fantasy. 
and a wonderful opportunity to help children or children of all ages, including mine, to understand truths that you wouldn't get easily. And usually they have to be expressed in deep philosophical terms. But some things also I was able to say that I think were true, but I have no way of proving it. For example, the pyramids. Why were the pyramids built? How were the pyramids built? People, orthodox people say that they were built by slave labor. People weren't dreaming slavery in those days. This was a very much more exalted civilization. Other people say, well, it was uh, um, built by teleportation and so on. Uh, other people say, oh, it was to, um, um, as an initiation room, having that huge pyramid, which built practically the city of Cairo and still is a pyramid, have that be an initiation chamber for one person? That didn't make sense. But you know, just like in Atlantis, they had that crystal. So from the pyramid, the pyramid shape generates power. And my fantasy, which I wouldn't dare put in an ordinary book, I was able to put in this children's book as a mere fantasy, but it's something you think about. I had these priests and priestesses go and lie in that sarcophagus, to which, incidentally, no lid has ever been found, no corpse was ever found. It was empty. But I had them lying in there and sending out blessing to the whole world. To me, that makes sense, but I can't prove it. So there were many things there that I was able to write that were fun, that were deep, that were charming. And uh, the kind of thing that I let my fantasy rise and soar, but yet I could say it also sincerely. And many truths there I know are deep and are true. But anyway, there's one point I wanted to come up with. There was a dog in this book. And... Uh, I thought, what name shall I give this dog? And the name came to me, Roquefort. It just seemed the bright name for that dog. 